Thank you for that, Bennett. Well, I do not think it is often very easy for us to speak about or reflect on uncomfortable things. <clears throat> we are we want to kind of move past discomfort, and I understand the reason for that. Um, we don't give a lot of time reflecting on things that make us uncomfortable. We like to reflect on the things that make us glad, right? You know, it's like, I'd rather think about the good things, uh, things that are working versus the things that are not. But, uh, as is true in life, is that you are often formed and forged much more through difficult, hard, and trying things than you are through ease. And the way to our salvation required a cross. The cross was not ours in the sense that we couldn't bear the payment for the sins of the world. We couldn't do it. Our sins were there. So the punishment that Jesus underwent is our punishment, but the result of that punishment is something that we ourselves could not have accomplished, which is salvation available for the world. I would mentioned last week that sermons on crucifixion can very often become like medical examinations or autopsies, where you say, well, crucifixion is so difficult, it's so hard to breathe, you're there for hours, you're in the hot sun, you've usually been beaten, all, all these things that we say, and, and it's hard to lift yourself up, and that's why the legs get broken, like all those things are true, and yet we're talking about the death of the Son of God for the sins of the world. Medical examination doesn't quite fit for me in how we should consider this. Um, because it, al it almost just feels odd. So as I was thinking about just that and where we are and what's going on and <clears throat> uh, the topic that we're in, and one of my convictions in preaching or teaching is the tone of the passage is the tone of the sermon. You don't you don't add humor when humor doesn't really exist at the cross. Uh, so we're going to do something different this morning. In that, we're going to go through three sections of what we just heard Bennett read. And after each section, we're going to stop and reflect. We're going to reflect silently, and then somebody will lead through a prayer for us to consider those movements. So we'll do three movements, each one ending with a brief time of reflection, and uh, somebody praying. And the reason for that is because we don't like to think about difficult things. And so we're going to build the time in here to think about difficult things, to consider what it means for us, to consider what's going on in the story, and how in it there is an invitation for us to die because Jesus did it first. We'll talk this week and next on the crucifixion, but we stopped short of what seems to be the climactic moment of the Gospel of John when Jesus says, it is finished. And so, it is finished is coming next week. We are not finished yet, but we'll look at what even John shows us, tells us, and communicates to us in these few verses in John 19, 16 through 27, in order to help us know all that is going on. And so, we'll begin and I want to start this way. If you look at, really, at 16b, uh, but so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. And actually, we might think the statement, went out, doesn't mean anything, but it does. He went out of the city. 
Now, many people will try and tell you where Golgotha is. They might try and say, oh, it's here, it's there. There's a place they like to bring people if you go to Israel, the Garden Tomb. The Garden Tomb is not where Jesus died. Uh, it's not where Jesus was crucified. Though many people will go there and have communion services there and do all of those things. Uh, it's very unlikely that's to be the case because Jesus is put in a new tomb. And the Garden Tomb tombs were old tombs. But still, they'll look and go, look at those walls. See, this is outside the city. There's a church in Jerusalem called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre is owned in part, managed by many different Christian denominations. And they all have little quadrants, and there's rules about who can participate in which quadrant. There's even a little ladder that's been up there for, I think, hundreds of years. Uh, right there, uh, as you walk in, because there's a disagreement on who put it there and whose responsibility it is to move it. It's still there. It's still there. That, more than likely, is the place where Jesus was crucified and buried not that far from it. More than likely. Now, it was come through uh, hundreds of years later, and a lot of those spaces were destroyed. The tombs were destroyed, and so there's not a lot there. But if you go into the church, you can find uh, these little holy places. But the sepulcher was outside of the gates at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Because the gates got built later that then included it in the, the old city limits, we could put it. But there's something about going outside of the city to Golgotha, where he was crucified. <clears throat> and this is something that the author of the Hebrews picks up on. And the reason for that is because there were sacrifices that were made, and then uh, things were brought outside the camp. Outside the camp, being outside the walls of the camp. And if you look at Hebrews 13, it'll be behind me, uh, we see this statement made. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, why would it be said like that? Well, the letter to the Hebrews, the Hebrews were a congregation that had significant Jewish roots. And they were being tempted in that moment to revert back to Judaism because the persecution that might come on them as Christ followers was rather significant. And so much of the letter of Hebrews is written to say, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to go back to law-keeping so that you don't get persecuted. And so this exhortation about Jesus going outside of the gate is the exhortation that he uses to say, now let us go outside and leave what we have, leave what might be comfortable, leave what we know, and let's go meet Jesus outside the gate. So even as John is telling us, so he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull called Golgotha, and he was crucified there with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. We recognize that we have to go outside of the gate, which means leave what we know to go to Jesus. Maybe even leave what is comfortable to go to Jesus. Leave behind our own life to go to Jesus. And in the sense that the Hebrew, author of Hebrews is using this, it's <clears throat> you need to leave what you're tempted to remain in. What, what you might think is going to give you comfort. No, you go stand with Jesus and take his reproach. You take that. Being crucified between two criminals, of course, it was not uncommon to have multiple crucifixions. It wouldn't, you know, like, so there were three there. 
Jesus in the middle with the two criminals on either side. And we see this clearly from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 12. The suffering servant. We looked at this some last year. In this conversation about this servant who will come and bear his life for the sins of many, we read this. Therefore I shall divide the portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered, listen to this, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You hear that, that line there? He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was amongst them. Well, that's that idea that John is letting us know, which is he was there crucified between two, two other criminals. That is where it happened. And so I think of even this first portion, and I go, it demands us when we see the cross of Christ, it demands of us that we leave what we know and go out to him. It is even that journey, a journey toward death. Our own death. The death of our own desires, the death of our own life, the death of our own hopes, so that we might go and be with Christ and receive from him what is abundantly better. But isn't it tempting in the same way that the author of the Hebrews puts it, isn't it tempting for us to want to remain in old systems, want to remain comfortable, want to remain in what we know because what we know is at the very least safe right now, even though it will result in our death later. Yet if we go out to him and we leave behind what is falsely familiar, we receive from him what no one else and what nothing else could ever give us, which is eternal life. Now, I know many of you in this room, I know many of you are followers of Jesus, and so you might be saying, I've already done this. I've already, I've already trusted in him. I've already been baptized. I've already declared that. I have the date in my Bible. I have it all there before me. So, so it seems like I'm good. And my challenge would be that our life is a daily dying. It is a daily dying. The taking up our cross and following him. The regular repetitive sacrifice of our own desires, of our flesh, of even our needs for the sake of others. The taking on suffering, potentially persecution and mockery. The laughter that our classmates might give us for following Jesus, the ways that they might say that we stand out. All of those items, everything there requires our regular death. The way that I have said this before is we think of the Christian life is it's, it's, it's one big yes of conversion and a million little yeses on the way. 
where you just keep going and you go, I'll die to that. I'll die to that. I'll die to that. I'll die to that. And we have, we have these moments where we go, golly, I feel like I should be over this by now. I don't feel like this should be an issue anymore. I don't feel like this sin should be a sin anymore. I don't feel like I should still get angry at my spouse when he does stupid things. Courtney, I love you, and I'm sorry about that. I, like, like I, I just, we have this way in which we live where we just go, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to keep going back to these addictions. I don't want to spend the last three hours of my day watching television, but I just keep doing it. It doesn't help me. It doesn't encourage me. It doesn't grow me. I just wake up groggy. I don't consider the Lord first, his will, his ways, his hope, and his heart. I don't consider any of those things first. But I've been at church for 45 years. It's a daily dying. I would guess here, Nana, you've uh, been the one in the room who's walked with the Lord the longest. Right? You've lost a few spouses along the way. You have uh, served in different places and in different ways. And I would guess that you still deal with some of the same things. You feel some of the same sins and you have some of the same burdens and you just go, why haven't I arrived? And you haven't arrived because you haven't resurrected. It's coming, but it's not there yet. And so it's all of those little yeses where we continually go and meet Jesus outside the camp and say, I'll take this. I'll die to this. This is not the most important. My will and my way is not the most, but it is yours. And so I'd like us to take a couple of minutes right now, and I'd like us to consider what we might need to repent of, leave behind, even if it's the same thing, the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's take a few minutes and bring that before the Lord and go, Lord, what is it? And may we commit again to leave it behind. To leave it behind to come to him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, my encouragement, exhortation, whatever word you want to use, would be to leave behind your life and go meet Jesus. To trust in him. To say, I don't know what's on the other side of this cross, but I trust it's better than what's on the other side of my life. My decisions my aspirations. Let's take a few minutes now.
Father, please move in our hearts by your Spirit with the reality of what you accomplished through the death of your Son be a very present reality in our lives. Would it not just be a distant event or just a quaint theological fact, but the truth that shocks our very being and leads to transformed hearts, thoughts, and lives? Would the eyes of our hearts be flooded with light by your spirit to see the weight of our sin against a holy God that led him to crush the one, the only one in whom was all his delight. Holy Spirit, empower each of us to move from godly sorrow and just feeling down into life-altering repentance. Would repentance become more and more a daily reality of turning from our own self-love and self-confidence into turning to Christ for daily forgiveness of sin and into embracing the love of the Father who loved us enough to lead his own sin to death that we may have life. Amen. It's interesting, too, as we consider the account of the crucifixion, what is going on that is far beyond our own ability to control. Now, I like to be a bit of a, a schemer in a good way. I like to know a plan. I like when it works. I like when the things work in the right way. I like when you put a project together and there are no delays it all happens as it's supposed to happen, and when you're supposed to be done, you're done. And it feels good to go, man, I think I nailed it. I think I did everything. But as you know, the more people that get included in that plan, the less likely it is that that plan is going to go anything like you had anticipated. You have enough trouble keeping a plan going that you're in charge of exclusively. Every person that you add multiplies the complexity. Every contractor that you add multiplies the complexity. Every day at range changes something, and then you get sick, and something else has to be adjusted. And so nothing goes according to plan except the things that God plans. And what we get to see in this next portion of the crucifixion is how God is using even ungodliness to fulfill Scripture and bring about His purposes. Now, that's something that we don't think about, because in general, if I said you have to think about a plan, you have to make a plan, you are going to pick the most reliable people to help you execute it. You're going to find the people who can meet a deadline. You're going to find the people who can get it done. You're going to find the people who can follow something through until it is finished and will lose sleep at night in order to accomplish it because they know it's important. That's who we'd use. We would use the best and the brightest and the most qualified to accomplish anything that we want to accomplish. And God uses idiots. He uses people who don't even know who he is, who don't even believe in him, and who thinks that they are more powerful than he is. And even then, we can't best him. 
We can't best him. We saw this with Pilate. We saw this in the interaction between the Jewish leadership and Pilate, where even God is using their manipulation of Pilate and Pilate's authority and Pilate's fear. They're using all of these things to bring about this moment, and God is over it all. Now, there are multiple times that we will see, both here and next week, where Scripture is being fulfilled. Some of it intentional, deliberate fulfillment by Jesus, where he is saying certain things or doing certain things so that scripture might be filled. And at other times, we see it like we do in this passage, where scripture is being fulfilled and truth is being spoken, even without people who want to have any part in the plan. Now, that's something only God can do. So, if you look in verse 19, and this will carry us all the way through 24, you will see some of these things. So, Pilate, and he's still bickering and frustrated with the Jewish leadership. Pilate wrote an inscription and put on it, put it on a cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in multiple languages. It's written in multiple languages because as people are coming into the city, people were crucified in a spot where there would be traffic. It was put there so that as a warning so that anybody who would be thinking about crossing the Roman government might get second thoughts. And so you go, hey, what's going on here? Why is this person being crucified? And Pilate was letting you know in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek what was happening. That's why if you see uh, at the top of a, like, like a, a, a cross or the image, you see I-N-R-I, Inri is what people would say. Uh, that would be the Latin one, I-N-R-R-I. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Rexus Iedu, right? Like, like it's all there, Inri. And so uh, we see that. We go, oh, yeah, what's that mean? It's, it's that statement. It's just the initials of that statement, Jesus, Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, what goes on even in this moment is is that Pilate makes a statement. And he's making a statement, in a sense, I would argue, to mock the Jewish leadership. They want him to be on trial for saying he was a king. They want him to be crucified for saying he was a king. And Pilate is going to have none of it. Because Pilate can flex his authority in this situation and say, you've asked me to crucify him, he's being crucified, what I've written, I've written. But you see that that frustration. Verse 21, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Don't, don't make it sound like he's the king. We don't even want people to think he's the king. Just make it, just say he said he was the king. Pilate won't do it. He's been frustrated the entire time. This entire exchange, he's been frustrated. And now that they've gotten the result that the Jewish leadership wanted, they're still nitpicking about what's being said about Jesus. And I could understand if you're in Pilate's shoes, you're kind of like, I'm done with this. I'm done with it. I've written it. I've said it. I've spoken it. Don't even care that you're bothered by it. This seems like a, a, like a little tiny frustration that exists between two different governing bodies, doesn't it? The Roman government and the Jewish leadership. Kind of two different governing bodies being bugged. And yet, his frustration 
Even Pilate's frustration is proclaiming something that is true. He doesn't put, this man was accused of being the king of the Jews. He doesn't put, this man said he was the king of the Jews. He puts, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. We've talked before how John is full of ironies where something should be black and it's white, something should be up and it's down, something should be there. And this is one of those times where through even this tense moment, we see God being glorified. And what I mean is, we've talked about glory being those things that make God seen, is that God is glorified even through the disbelief in this moment because what is actually produced is truth about Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. Even in the frustration that the leadership has of going, we don't want anybody to feel that way. Too bad. That's what's been written. Even unknowingly, God uses Pilate's frustration to say something that is true, that echoes through history. But it's not just that. The soldiers there have a part to play, and they don't even know they have a part to play. The soldiers are there doing what they would probably always be doing, which is just taking the spoil of the one who is dead or dying. Just taking it, mocking the person on the cross, because anytime somebody with that kind of power can demonstrate it, they're going to take it. They're going to use it. And that's what they're doing right here. Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, rather kingly for a crucified man to be wearing. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. It's too valuable. And they might be soldiers, but they're not fools. Let's cast lots to see whose it shall be. And John is seeing in this a portion of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a rather, it would be called a messianic psalm, Messiah-like, explaining things about the Messiah. And Psalm 22, many parts of it, in fact, our community groups will be looking at it this week if you're gathering and looking at parts of Psalm 22 and just seeing all of the ways, because Psalm 22 is quoted throughout the gospel writers and what they are saying on the cross. And in Psalm 22, 18, we have this line, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And they're looking at what soldiers would do at the time where somebody is being punished. They don't have any property anymore. They're as close to being a dead man as they could possibly be. And so what are we going to do with the clothing? You know what? What are they? We all know what this is. This is trophy keeping. You keep it. You keep the trophy. Something that happened. This seemed like a pretty big deal. Jewish nation was very angry about this man, Jesus, and I have some of his clothing. We love to have these, these keepsakes, relics, trophies, whatever those things are, memories of something. Might it be significant, insignificant, something that mattered to us, something that we think we could sell later for a greater value, whatever it is. But that's what they have. 
So even as they just go through the normal motions of doing what they do, and rather than consider tearing that one cloth, that, unwo- or that uh, unwoven together garment, and tearing it and giving it amongst them, they go, you know what, we shouldn't do that. Let's just let one of us have it. It's kind of nice. But John lets us know in verse 24 just that. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, why would that be so significant? Because man can't plan this. Man can't plan this. I feel good if my day goes according to plan. I, I feel in control. I feel like I have power. I feel like I have authority. I might even get a big head about it if the first four hours of my day go according to plan. But in general, I haven't made it to the gym by 6 a.m. when I want to, and I've ar- I'm already starting at a deficit. I wake up groggy, I fall halfway asleep through my Bible listening on the Dwell app, and, I go, I go, and I'm a mess. And I'm starting at a negative 35 rather than even at a zero because the things I wanted to do from 5 a.m. onward haven't happened. The days it does happen, believe me, you're going to hear about it because I'm so proud of myself that I could control the first four hours of my morning. And yet here we have in a raucous with crowds and wicked men and wicked leaders and people who really have no concern for Jesus at all, here we have not just things going according to plan, but things going according to plan that are fulfilling things that were written hundreds of years prior. I can't project out into next week, let alone a series of events that would lead to this moment. We've had a moment to consider the ways we need to leave our own comforts, our own sin, and go outside the camp and find Christ. We need to take a moment and rejoice and praise God that his plans work to their end, even when he uses wicked people, even when everything seems hopeless, even when we're not sure what the outcome is going to be, if God can superintend what is going on in these moments, should we fear what happens tomorrow? Should we have any concern for what happens a week from now? Should we be really, really worried about 30 years from now if we should get there, if there'll be enough money to retire? All of these ways that we get nervous about what's going to be. And yet what we have is God using people to bring about his ends. By God's grace, I I have been able to be this in people's lives, and people have been this in my life. Where you say something to them and you go, you have no idea how much I needed to hear that. You're like, really? I was just like, it's just Tuesday, and I just realized I haven't talked to you in four years, so I wanted to say hello. And you're like, this is, you're the exact, I thought of you this morning. I'm like, well, I couldn't have written that. 
right? I can't even put into my to-do list spontaneously bless somebody because like, it, like, I won't, like, it just won't happen. And yet these moments happen regularly. But they happen regularly because we have a God that's going to superintend even the most significant. He's going to bring about his ends. He's going to bring about his purposes. And he's going to do his work. And the thing that we get to do is rejoice and praise him. And I'll even add this, and relax. Because we can't bring about those ends. We can't plan it to that. Like, like Pilate is demonstrating in this entire exchange that we've seen over the past few weeks, no one tells me what to do. No one tells me what to do. But we already heard Jesus say, you have no authority unless it comes from God. Pilate doesn't even know that in this instance, he's just a man being used. Being used by God to bring about an end that his authority came from God, this moment came from God, and even the decision came from God. And we, as uncomfortable as that might be, it's weird to think that rejoicing is the right result, but it is because we get to stand back and praise him for what he's done. Let's take a few moments, just right now, in the quiet, and praise God for his sovereignty over all of this that even brings about this moment. Will you thank the Lord with me? Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. We thank you that you are an omniscient God. There is no event that passes that escapes your awareness that you have not already foreseen or will weave into your plan to execute your glory for mankind to behold and marvel at. There is nothing that could have prevented your righteous plan of suffering 
and wrath to be poured out upon Christ, your beloved, your precious son. Thank you that Christ stood faithful and obedient even when everything around him looked to be falling apart. When leaders wrongfully condemned him, when family and friends deserted him, when he was betrayed by one of his closest companions, Christ stood. We praise you that not even the suffering and loss he experienced in those moments could have thwarted the perfect plan that you were executing. Even when the religious and governing authorities conspired and condemned him to death, the evil schemes of man meant to silence, intimidate, control, and subdue were merely the vehicles by which the sun was lifted up for us. Not even the schemes of man could hinder you from accomplishing your plan of salvation. Lord, may you strengthen us by your spirit in our times of suffering to consider how the Son stood for us, staying true to the reality that you hold all things in your hand, that nothing stands outside your ability to control, that you work all things for good, that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Lord, we revel in the execution of your perfect plans and declare all your works are just. We praise and worship your mighty name. Amen. And yet, John gives us not just a moment of Jesus going outside the camp and not just a moment of Jesus being mocked, but he gives us a moment of family life on the cross. It's stunning to me in a moment of excruciating pain where Jesus is breaths away from death. That he sees his mom and he ensures her care. This is interesting because if you remember and you were with us a year plus ago when we were in John having a conversation in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine and Jesus' mother says, hey, essentially, you, you know what to do here. And he says, mom, my time has not come. It's not time to do this yet. But she wants to put her son on display. And Jesus does it. Years go by and Passover celebrations go by and they've had interactions that we've even seen in other gospels where Jesus seems to stiff arm his family. The one who does the will of my father is my mother and my sister and my brother. Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. They don't trust who he is. They don't know who he is. They don't, certainly don't believe who he is. And I understand the sibling factor there. It could very well be that they are not even in Jerusalem at this moment, that his brothers are not even there, his family are not there for this intense moment, but his mom is there. Moms are always there. And you have no idea. This is the thing I love about John. You have no idea that Mary might have been there the whole time. But she shows up here in the end. And John wants us to know 
but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. would think these are four different people. Some people think it's three, some people think it's two, depending on, right, mother, mother, sister, are they then being named? Or mother, mother, sister, and these two people? Or is mother Mary and his mother, sister, this person and that person? I think there are four people at the cross, but fundamentally not the most significant thing right there. Because they would be there at times for hours and people would be coming and going, you would probably expect there to be, even some of Jesus' disciples might be at a distance seeing what's going on whilst trying to keep themselves separate from full-on identification with him. The disciple whom Jesus loved, many people would say, would be John. There are arguments for others, but we'll say John for this moment, even though some, some, sometimes he feels Lazarus. Um, but the disciple Jesus loved very often is demonstrated as John. It would make a lot of sense that it would be John. The kind of, he, he, he talks about God's love all the time, not just in the Gospel of John, but in his epistles. He's talking about the love of God all the time. He's kind of the, the love apostle. And what we have here in this moment, when the eldest son is about to die, he sees his mom, and he ensures that his mother's care is given to one of his followers. And so when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Not talking about himself in that instance. Woman, look at your son. We were, I know all the, the pictures of Jesus crucified have him, have him clothed, but he's not. Woman, behold your son. You might be, look at me. But he's not saying, look at me. He's saying, look at John. And he speaks to John, and he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I, I don't know how selfish I would be in my last moments. I'd like to think I wouldn't be that selfish. Um, but we have wills and testaments and things like that to state those things that we would say when we can't say them or may not think about them. So we find our lucid moments to say the things that we want to happen later, and Jesus is fully lucid until his last breath. And he is still doing what a firstborn Jewish man would do, which is ensure that his mom would be taken care of. We don't really know what happened to Joseph. Arguments are that he died. You know, we don't see his story kind of continue. Maybe his mother was widowed and had nobody to take care of her. But we know that in this moment, when Jesus can no longer be who he needs to be for his mom, he turns to John, the disciple whom he loved, and says, this is your mother, and this is your son. And we get that moment right before he says, it is finished, which we see next week. That right before he says, it is finished, he has this personal conversation with his mother and a disciple. And he ensured that his mother was taken care of. Even on the cross, Jesus is concerned 
about his own obedience so that his sacrifice would be all-sufficient. He is obedient until his final breath. And it required every breath to be obedient for the sacrifice to be sufficient. Every moment of Christ's life had to be what was supposed to be. If the sacrifice was going to be the one that could pay the penalty for our sins. A half breath too soon in giving up obedience, and it doesn't count. It's still what you and I provide, which is partial obedience. But this was fully, fully obedient. Take a moment and consider the obedience of Jesus to death, even death on a cross. I will read from that. After that, I'll read from Philippians 2. And we will consider the sacrifice of Jesus through communion. Take a moment now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we see the sacrifice of your Son, and we do not, even as we ought, we do not fully comprehend it. We do not fully appreciate it. We do not fully love it. We do not fully rejoice in it. We do not pursue it, think of it, consider it, or live our lives in light of it nearly as often as we know we should. But even then, it is his obedience and not ours, his life, not ours, his full devotion and not ours that stands the test of time. Do pray, Lord, that we would follow in his example, that we would die to self, live obedient lives, but that we would do it with a heart of rejoicing and recognizing that it is Jesus 
who led the way, Jesus who did what we could not, Jesus who gave us that example, but Lord, it is Jesus who paid the penalty, not us. And we are grateful this morning that that penalty was not put on us, but on him. We rejoice as brothers and sisters that we have life because of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Every week we gather, we take communion. We take communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, the work of Jesus for us. We rejoice in the life that we have. Paul says, for as long as you take this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we remember that work this morning. Communion is available for all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's not you this morning, we would ask you just to remain where you are and consider his sacrifice for your sins. In just a moment, as you're able, you can come up to the front. Those elements are, are stacked, and so you can have one stack. Take it back with you. Consider that work, and then we are going to hear one of our uh, leaders, and we are going to take communion together. So take a moment, consider your Savior, and when you're ready, come and receive what you could not have gotten by your own effort.